If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn in it to 1 Peter chapter 5, the epistle of 1 Peter in chapter 5. We come this morning after about 30 sermons or so to the end of the epistle of 1 Peter. At least that's the plan. We'll see how this goes. 1 Peter chapter 5, I'd like us to consider this morning the last five verses, so verses 10 through 14, but I want to read those verses in context and get the whole sense that Peter is bringing to us as he concludes his letter, and that begins in verse 6. So we'll read 1 Peter 5, beginning in verse 6, and we'll read through the end of the book in verse 14. Please follow along as I read. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties onto Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, The God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. So does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let me just ask that we pray once more. Let's pray together. Lord, what a gift and a privilege it is now to come before your word. You have not left us uh, without revelation from you. You've given us the Bible. And so we who are your people, Christians gathered here, who long to know you and to hear from you, please come now through the preaching of your word and speak to us. Give to each one of us a humble disposition, ready to hear from our Lord. And may you give us the grace to apply and to incorporate what it is that you have said to us into our lives. May we be ready servants of the Lord, eager to hear what God has spoken. Please come and minister your word to us now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Like I said, we've come to the end of the letter of 1 Peter. Uh, Peter will conclude in verse 12 by highlighting the service of Silvanus, uh, who we understand penned the letter, probably under Peter's dictation. Uh, You have in verse 13 some final comments that Peter makes. He says, she who is at Babylon... Uh, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. So does Mark, my son. Presumably Mark was with Peter, and Mark sends greetings. Uh, She who is at Babylon, commentators disagree over exactly how to understand that phrase. I agree with what I think is the majority of commentators that this would have been in the early centuries of the church a way to speak of Rome as a city, to refer to it as Babylon. And there's reasons for that. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, God's people were in captivity in Babylon, and many of the things the Old Testament Scriptures say about Babylon came to be associated with Rome. We do believe that Peter is in Rome at this time. So what I think Peter is saying there is that the churches in Babylon uh, greet you. So it's him giving greetings from the churches there uh, of whom Peter was uh, pastor. And then, of course, the greeting from Mark is given as well. Uh, He summarizes the letter in verse 12, which is kind of a summary statement of all that we've seen in the book so far. He says there in the middle of verse 12, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And I think we should understand Peter be saying, this letter I've written to you by Silvanus' hand, this, this letter... What I have given to you as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, one who has witnessed the sufferings of the Lord Jesus, this is the true grace of God. You Christians, stand firm in this grace that I have written to you. Very briefly, as this is the last sermon, God willing, in 1 Peter for us, at least in this series, what have we seen in this letter so far? 
which is said to comprise the true grace of God. There's lots of different ways we might break down the book and divide up the book. I prefer to divide it into three sections. The first would be chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 10. And in this section, the opening one and a half chapters of 1 Peter, Peter expounds the hope and the salvation that belongs to every Christian through the new birth and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This hope is the salvation that belongs to each one of us who are in Christ, and it will finally and fully be ours, we learn, at the appearing of Christ Jesus. When Christ returns at His revelation, when He comes back, we will fully experience this salvation that has begun in us. Peter goes on in the latter half of chapter 1 to exhort these saints to live in holiness before God. He says you're to be holy as God is holy. He reminds them of their holy calling in chapter 2 as now not just a group of individuals, but as a people, as what he calls a chosen race. In the church, God is making a new race, a new humanity, elect and chosen by God Himself, and that new community is said to be God's special people. It's said to be a family of the Lord's people, of brothers and sisters, and it's said to comprise The language that Peter uses is like a new temple, a new spiritual house for God that when we come together, we make up as the people of God. And as such a community, it's to be marked by holiness and reverence and worship. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. Then you have the second section of the book, which begins in verse 11 and really runs through chapter 4, verse 6. And this is the main bulk. I think, of the series that we've done over these months together. And in this section, beginning in chapter 2, verse 11, through chapter 4, verse 6, the focus of these chapters, these verses, is on the public conduct of the people of God. That is how we, as elect exiles living in a hostile world that is not our home, how do we live before a watching world? So, so when God saves a man or a woman, He calls them into the community of the church, but that community is not like some hermetic community or monkish community where we're to withdraw from society. Rather, the church is to be the light of the world. It's to be a city on a hill, and we are called to remain into our various relationships in the wider world, a world that we learn is hostile to the Christian faith, and yet we're to be lights in the world. Peter focuses in a major way on what our conduct before the world should be like. So, in the latter half of chapter 2, he considers how Christians should relate to the government, uh, to the emperor, and to governors, and lesser uh, authorities and magistrates as well. He considers how Christian slaves should live in relationship to their masters, especially those who are unjust. He considers how wives should live in relationship to their husband. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6. How husbands are to live in relationship with their wives, 1 Peter 3, 7. And then in general, in the rest of chapter 3 into chapter 4, how all the people of God are to live particularly in the context of suffering and opposition that comes to them by virtue of their attachment to Jesus. So all people suffer, of course, But those who are Christians suffer in a special way as the people of God. Jesus said Himself in Matthew, I think it's chapter, excuse me, John chapter 15, that if they hated me, the Master, they will also hate you, my servants. Of course, the Lord calls all of His disciples to follow Him by taking up their cross. The opposition of the world is coming for each one of us, and we saw together how to think about that according to the directives and instructions Peter gives us. The final section is 1 Peter 4, 7 through chapter 5, verse 14. Peter transitions beginning in verse 7 to focusing the attention of his readers on the end of all things, and he brings some closing burdens beginning in chapter 4, verse 7 that are theirs in light of the end. He calls them, first of all, to be sober-minded and self-controlled. He reminds them that above all, the greatest priority is that we as the people of God continue loving one another even as we see the day drawing near. And then he emphasizes the importance of each member of the body of Christ utilizing their gifts for the building up of the body. For some, that'll be gifts of speaking. For others, that'll be gifts of service. But our gifts are to be used to bless and build up the body of Christ. In the first verses of chapter 5, Peter gives words to the elders, the leaders 
of the churches, reminding them of the heart of their work, which is not primarily the management of assets and the putting together of budgets and acting as a CEO, but rather being examples to the flock as faithful shepherds, caring for the flock of God that is among them. He then reminds these saints in the middle of chapter 5 of the importance of humility and of resisting sinful pride. He calls them again to sober-mindedness and watchfulness, this time the emphasis being on the activity of the devil, who is said to be the believer's adversary. We are to be watchful. We're to be sober-minded as we recognize our adversary, the devil, which we talked about last week, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And we are exhorted to resist him, firm in our faith, knowing that we're not alone, but that all of God's people take their stand against Satan. That brings us now to Peter's concluding words that I want us to consider this morning. Let me read them again, beginning in verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is a very simple sermon. I want to make four simple statements. I hope there's simplicity will not erode the sense of wonder we ought to have about these statements, but they're simple statements that should characterize uh, our days and our weeks and our years as we follow Jesus Christ as exiles in this world and as we walk heavenward to the glory that is to be revealed in each one of us. So, four statements that are rooted in the passage itself. We'll consider, first of all, that suffering is temporary. Secondly, that glory is coming. Thirdly, that God has all dominion. And fourthly and finally, that we are called to endurance. Suffering is temporary. God is coming. God has, excuse me, glory is coming. God has all dominion. We are called to endurance. Consider with me in the first place, suffering is temporary. Look again at the beginning of verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while. Now, what does Peter mean when he refers to suffering here? After you've suffered a little while. There's a few possible things he could mean. He could be referring, first of all, most immediately to what he's just said. He's referred to our adversary, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. We're to resist him, and we're to remember all believers suffer the attacks of Satan. And so maybe Peter is saying, well, after you've suffered a little while from the attacks of the evil one, I'm going to deliver you. I don't think that that's Peter's meaning. Uh, A second possible interpretation is that Peter could be referring to some sort of temporary instance of suffering or circumstance of suffering in the lives of these particular Christians. So you could have in mind a particular period in your life where you're experiencing an acute kind of suffering, and the idea would then be that the Lord will never allow that period of suffering to go on you know, endlessly, but rather He'll make a way of escape and deliverance for you in this life some way or another. Well, that certainly sometimes happens, but I don't think in context that's Peter's meaning here. The third possible interpretation I feel certain is the right interpretation, and that is that this is rather a reference to the general experiences of suffering we all experience as the people of God as long as this life endures. So I don't think that Peter is imagining one particular instance of suffering, nor do I think he's referring only to the suffering we experience at the hands of Satan. Rather, he's thinking of this period of our lives, this this period in which we wander the world as exiles, in a world that is hostile to us, a world that is not our home, and as we await everlasting life and the inheritance that is to come. We are in the period in which we are called to take up our cross. We are in the period of suffering. We're in the period of waiting on the Lord. And when this life is over, that period will come to an end, and we will be forever with Jesus. 
All of us experience suffering in this life, and it has its fits and starts, but throughout our entire lives, Peter seems to view this life as one in which we suffer for Christ's sake. The Christian life is one of suffering and hardship, but the idea is that there is coming a day, and it is not far off, that Christians will be delivered, and they will finally reach their home, and they will enjoy the inheritance of everlasting life forever with Jesus Christ throughout all eternity. This is Peter's meaning by this phrase, and after you have suffered a little while. He's saying this life in which we suffer for Christ's sake is short, and it will soon be over. So here, I want to provide just two encouragements for us as exiles, as sojourners in this world who suffer for Jesus' sake. First of all, brothers and sisters, recognize that our suffering in this life is only temporary. Our suffering in this life is only temporary. Friends, all the suffering we experience in this life as believers, as we fight sin, as we endure the hostility of the world, as we suffer for Jesus' sake, as we strive and wrestle with our adversary, the devil, this is all temporary. Very soon, it's going to be over. Whatever suffering, my friend, you experience for Christ's sake, however difficult and distressing it is to you, it has an expiration date. Our trials and sufferings as the people of God will one day give way to final victory, and they will be over forever. So Peter is trying to encourage these saints who are enduring, as he says in 1 Peter 3, fiery trials and all kinds of slandering and threatenings and malignings. He says, remember, this is brief. This is temporary. There's going to be an end to these sufferings. This isn't going to be this way forever. Hang in there. Persevere. This is only temporary. There's coming a day when these sufferings will be over. I had the privilege of being in the room uh, for each of Jenna's deliveries of our three kids, and that's always a really exciting experience. If you're not a dad yet, I know some dads are kind of squeamish around hospitals and all that. If you could try to be in the room, maybe stand at an angle, you don't have to watch all the action, but it's a, it's a glorious experience, a remarkable experience. But, but, but there is a certain anxiety and tension that is present in the delivery room because your, your, your wife is in pain as she's delivering the baby and there's all kinds of pressure and you have some anxiety about whether the baby's going to be healthy and all of that. I, I always, though, get very excited when they get to the time where you're supposed to push. There's just an adrenaline and an excitement in the room. Now, I'm not the one pushing, of course, and so I can afford to be kind of the cheerleader and the coach and all of that. But, but what's, what's so encouraging is, is, you know, I'll be by Jenna's side, and then there are nurses and doctors, and they're all encouraging her. Just push. Just push. He's almost coming. Oh, he looks so beautiful. We can begin to see him. Just keep pushing. Hang in there. Hang in there. And what continues to encourage that woman to continue pushing is knowing there's something glorious that's to come after this pain I'm experiencing now. This is only temporary. I'm trying to, to push this baby out so that we can then hold our child. Well, similarly, I think Peter is kind of like a birthing coach in that way. Uh, th this is temporary, this life. The sufferings and trials we experience are giving way to a greater glory that will be ours. Hang in there. Keep persevering. Keep enduring. The sufferings we experience are only temporary. But there's a second encouragement I want to give us, and I think this is at the heart of Peter's meaning here. Our sufferings in this life are temporary, but recognize also, Christian, our suffering is brief, which is to say, I think, something more than that our suffering is merely temporary. Our suffering is temporary, comes to an end, but the Bible views this present life and thus our suffering as brief, as lasting only a little while. That's how Peter describes it. After you have suffered, not for so long a span, for many, many years, he chooses to focus on the brevity of our suffering after you have suffered a little while. Scores of other texts can be adduced that use similar language that convey the brevity of life and thus our sufferings as the people of God. The idea is that from the perspective of eternity, our suffering, our lives are going to feel like a blip on the radar. 70 or 80 years if we live out the full measure of our days. 
That's just seen as a little while. It's a short life. 100,000 years from now, Christian, you'll be in heaven, and you'll have been there for 100,000 years or so. What will this life seem to you then? It'll just seem like a vapor, like a breath, like it just, just went by so quickly. That's how the Bible views this life. I highlight this for a couple of reasons. The first is just to encourage you, this will all soon be over. Whatever discouraging and distressing trial is in your life, it will come to an end, and it will come to an end very soon. All of us are dead in a hundred years, some of us much sooner than that. In fact, most of us much sooner than that. Whatever sufferings and trials and difficulties you are experiencing now, it's not a problem you're going to have a hundred years from now. For some of us, it's not a problem we're going to have ten years from now because we're going to be dead and be with Jesus. This puts our present suffering in perspective. I think that's exactly what Peter is doing here, impressing his readers with the brevity of life and the brevity of Christian suffering. It won't be long now, brothers and sisters. It won't be long. It's only a little while that we must persevere and endure. But I also highlight this idea of the brevity of life to emphasize that we should take our present lives now very seriously. Life is short, eternity is forever. How seriously should we take this little while life, this very brief, very momentary life? You know the quote from C.T. Studd that we quote many times, one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. None of us has much time on this earth. Life is a vapor. The Christian life and the suffering of the Christian life are only a little while. So, brothers and sisters, let's live for eternity. Don't get caught up in trivial things. Let's not get caught up in distractions. Certainly, let us not, as Peter warns us, get caught up in the passions of the flesh and the passing sins of the world. Rather, let us get caught up in living now for Jesus and for the home that He Himself has gone to prepare for us. We should live with this perspective always. The sufferings of the present time are brief. The call to endurance is not a call that has a very long duration. Life is short. We will soon be with Jesus. We are to live for Him now. My suffering is only brief. It's only a little while. Therefore, I'm going to fight sin now. I'm going to resist Satan now. I'm going to persevere now, despite the opposition of the world that I face. Friends, this only lasts a little while. And the call to us is because it's only brief. Jesus is not asking you to wrestle and strive with Satan for 10,000 years. Our suffering is brief. Our life lasts only a little while. Therefore, we can push ahead by grace. The brevity of this life is seen to be an encouragement to promote perseverance. To use just another illustration, not that long ago, uh, my son, three-year-old son Nico, I had been trimming hedges in, in the yard, and those hedges had some thorns attached to them. He comes running out with no shoes on, and he steps on a bunch of the thorns, and now my little boy has seven or eight splinters. If you've ever tried to remove a splinter from a little child who doesn't understand what you're doing. It's a harrowing experience. <laughs> one splinter is enough, and I've had to remove one before, and I think Nico's old enough to kind of get that. Okay, I have something in my foot. It's going to hurt for just a second, but if I buckle down, hold my legs still, it'll be done before no time but there were seven or eight in them. And so the first one or two, he was able to be cool, he was brave, but it was this long ordeal of 10 minutes of trying to get these splinters out, it was just awful. But what's the illustration? It is to say that had my son known that this is only gonna take a minute, it's only gonna take a second, this is brief, he could have persevered, it would have heartened him and strengthened him to persevere and to be a big boy, right? Well, that's something of the motivation Peter is giving us. He's saying, life is short, eternity is forever. This suffering that seems like the fiery trial, it only lasts a little while. And that's to encourage us, I, I can make it, I can persevere. We suffer only a little while as we look to Christ and sojourn through this world. Life is short, it's only a little while, and we need to allow this reality to affect us as it ought 
While I'm on this point, because I just think anytime you talk about the brevity of life, it's important to emphasize this, even though I don't think this is Peter's primary meeting here. I want to address the young people in particular. You got one life, one life. And the Bible's perspective is that this one life is very, very short. How are you going to use your life? It's going to be gone before you know it. Ask any of the older folks in this room. You have one life. It might seem like it's all in front of you now, that you're never going to die. My job as your pastor is to remind you week by week that you're going to die, and very soon at that, and then you're going to stand before God and answer to Him. One life will soon be passed. The Bible reveals this is a little while, and soon you will be before your Maker. Busy middle-aged folks, carting your kids around and trying to pay your bills, you also have one life, and it'll soon be over. Older folks who are retirement age, and maybe have the means to spend the rest of your years on the golf course or at the beach or traveling to Paris, you got one life, and it's almost done. One of my jobs as your pastor is to remind you regularly of this. We will all soon be dead. We will all stand before our Maker, and we will answer to Him. I don't typically like when preachers do this kind of thing, when they ask the, the congregation to participate. And if you've been in this church for any length of time, you know I never do this, but I'm going to ask you to humor me. I want you to take one of your hands and hold it out in front of you, and I want you to look at your hand. You don't need to look at me. Just hold your hand out in front of you. Don't push the person in front of you. Just hold it. And just look, look at your hand. That hand will soon be a skeleton in a box. Very soon. Just decaying cartilage in a box. What perspective should that give you, Christian, on your life? The end is near. Eternity is forever. Heaven and hell are real. How ought we to live as the people of God? And even though Peter is not addressing those who are outside of Christ, I want to address those who are outside of Christ. How should you respond to that fact? That very soon you will be a box of bones. You too are going to die, and you're going to stand before your Creator God. How should you live? How should you respond to the message that I'm preaching this morning? and to the realities that we've sung about and prayed about in this service. Today, the Scriptures say, is the day of salvation. You can appear before your Maker in all of your sins and the nakedness of all your wickedness and your rebellion against God, and you can go to hell forever. Or you could appear in the righteous robe of Jesus Christ in the salvation He offers to all those who turn from their sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that this message is given to you. If you are under the hearing of my voice, today is the day to respond, to come to Jesus that you might live. Life is short, hell is hot, heaven is sweet, and they last forever. Come to Jesus that you might live and spend eternity in paradise with the Lord Jesus. But back to our text and to you here who are Christians. You are Peter's audience, and what is the word to you? This suffering of this life is temporary, and it's brief. And though we suffer for Christ's sake, we suffer only a little while. Now, the second major point that we have in our text, suffering is temporary. Secondly, glory is coming. Suffering is temporary. Glory is coming. Look with me again at verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Note just a few things about this verse. First of all, God is described as the God of all grace. What a beautiful description the God we worship, the God who is our Father, is the God of all grace. Friends, He is a gracious God and a good God and a beneficent God. He loves you. 
He cares for you. And His will, His desire is to pour out His grace upon you. He is abounding in steadfast love toward you. He is described as the God of all grace. Second thing to note is that this God of all grace is further described as the one who has called you, Christian, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ. Christian, God has called you. You know that. He has called you to Himself. He has called you to follow Christ. And in calling you to follow Christ, He has called you to some measure of suffering, to take up your cross. This requires that we suffer for Jesus' sake. But make no mistake, the call that God gives us is also a call to, into, unto His eternal glory. Glory is coming, Christian. We are each one of us called to His eternal glory. God will make you, brother or sister, a partaker of the glory of God. That's how Peter describes himself in 1 Peter 5. He says, I exhort you as a fellow elder, as one who has witnessed the sufferings of Christ, and as a partaker, one who will taste, one who will have, who will experience, who will be part of, one who is a partaker of the glory to be revealed. That is a description that applies to each one of us who have been called by the God of all grace to His eternal glory. And you'll notice that we're called to this eternal glory in Christ, meaning that it's through Christ and His work on our behalf and through our union with Him that all of this becomes ours. God's glory is our inheritance because of what our Savior Jesus did for us. Through Jesus, I, as a redeemed sinner, have access to the glory of God that I only taste now, but will be fully and finally mine, fully and finally ours who are in Christ Jesus when He Himself appears. We are called to His eternal glory. That's the destination of the Christian. That's how this ends for us. We suffer only a little while, but we are called, each one of us, to His eternal glory, which we will enjoy forever and ever and ever. But he says more. What will this God of all grace do for us after we have suffered a little while? Note thirdly, he will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You just think of what tender words these would be, how they would hit the ears and the hearts of Christians enduring the fiery trial. God's eye is on you. He has glorious plans for you to introduce you into His glory, and He Himself, the God of all grace who cares for you, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I'm not going to break down each of these terms. I think the four of them together are given as this kind of crescendo describing the things the Lord will do for His people who persevere through suffering unto the end. For them, He will restore them or perfect them. He will confirm them. That is, they will have God's approval. He will confirm each one of them in the faith. He will strengthen them. Brother, sister, He will strengthen you. We may appear in the world's eyes to be weak and fledgling and foolish and small, but God sees, God knows, and He will strengthen His people, and He will establish them. They will be made firm and be made to stand at the last day. In other words, when we take all four of these words together, we learn that those who suffer now will have the approval of God and will be given everlasting salvation from Him. Christian, before leaving this point, I simply want to encourage you, glory is coming for each one of us. Final salvation is coming. It won't be long now until we will have our inheritance. The glory of God will be our reward. The glory of God will be our inheritance, and we will revel in and enjoy and celebrate the glory of God forevermore, and it is His gift, His inheritance given to each one of His children. I know it's hard now. Peter's realistic about the hardships of this life. I know you're fighting with sin, and we are also tired of fighting with sin. We're so tired of enduring the assaults and the attacks of Satan 
enduring the hostility of the world, the various trials and temptations that come. But one day, brothers and sisters, the promise is this, it will all be worth it. We suffer a little while knowing that eternal glory in Christ Jesus is right around the corner. For each one of us, we should recognize the hope-filled words of Peter. We are going to live forever in paradise with the Lord and will be made a partaker of the glory of God. And He Himself is going to restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. Therefore, we ought to persevere. Therefore, we ought to endure with our eyes on the prize recognizing the reward that is held out for us. Glory is coming, brothers and sisters. And remember the words of the Apostle Peter in Romans 8. The sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in those who love God. Suffering is temporary. Glory is coming. And now more briefly, number three, God has all dominion. God has all dominion. Verse 11, you have a doxological statement, doxology, praise to God. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. To Him be the dominion, the power, the strength, the might, the lordship, the rule. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Such passages like this one are quite common in other books in the New Testament, especially in the writings of Paul. These doxological passages will show up. It appears sometimes spontaneously, often toward the end of books as well. But I I have to say, this one in particular, in verse 11, it just hit me a little bit different this week. It just seemed special in its own way. Just remember, if you can, all the things Peter has taken these Christians through how difficult the Christian life sometimes seems, how real the temptation to sin is, how how strong the opposition that is ours in the world and in the evil one. We're exiles in a hostile world that is not our home. But then we get to verse 11, and it's just like being able to, to breathe out. Remember, brothers and sisters, to Him, to your God, the God of all grace belongs all dominion forever and forever. In light of all of this, I think these words in verse 11 come with special power to the Christian. Let of all we suffer, all that we struggle with in this life, do not forget, Christian, to your God belongs all dominion forever and ever. And how, for this fledgling group of Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor, how it must have dazzled them to know as, as weak and insignificant as we appear, as despised as we are in the world, you're telling me the God we worship, He possesses all dominion, all authority, all power. To Christians, this truth breathes unspeakable comfort. Christian, never forget that the Lord you follow and serve has all dominion forever and ever. It might appear like things are so out of control, It might appear as though this world is winning and Christians are losing. It might appear as though the wicked prosper and the people of God are wasting their lives and God has somehow forgotten about us. We need to remember that at all times, our God has all dominion forever and ever. It might appear like things in your life are a mess. It might appear like things in the world are a mess. It might appear like things in the church are a mess. We need to remember that even when things appear like they're a mess, our God has all dominion, and He has that dominion everlastingly. His lordship and His authority has never faltered for an instant. Even in the light of those things that appear disappointing and discouraging and disillusioning, we must remember to God and God alone belongs all dominion, all authority, and all power. Before leaving this point, I just want to turn again to those who are outside of Christ. Again, I recognize that this is not Peter's primary audience. He's seeking to encourage and excite and animate the people of God. But to you who are outside of Christ, what does this truth mean to you? That 
To God alone belongs all dominion, all power, and all authority. For you, as one who is outside of the loving grace of the Lord Jesus, one who is living in rebellion against God and refusing to bow the knee and repent that you might live, how on earth could such a truth speak any comfort to you? The fact that the Lord has all dominion can only be the source of the greatest dread to you because you are living as a rebel, refusing to bow the knee to the one who has all power and dominion. But that dread, my friend, can melt into delight and into hope as you recognize this one who has all dominion is one who is ready to save those who come to him, and he has the power to save you. Into his hand is given all dominion and power and might. His arm is mighty to save. And the one who has all dominion, the Lord himself, is ready to receive sinners. And he's mighty to save them. And that news that to him belongs dominion forever and ever, that can be the source of so much dread for those who are outside of Christ, well, it can become the source of all your hope for all your days. Well, now I want to move, fourthly and finally, to one last statement, simple truth that we're given in this passage. We've seen, number one, suffering is temporary. Number two, glory is coming. Number three, God has all dominion. Now, fourthly and finally, we are called to endurance. We are called to endurance. Verse 12, by Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Peter's saying, hang in there. Persevere. Endure. You can make it just a little longer. Have your eye on the inheritance of everlasting life that is to come. Our sufferings are only a little while. Glory is coming. God has all dominion, therefore, brothers and sisters, persevere by faith. Stand firm in the grace of God that is given to you. The response of faith to all that we have seen in the book of 1 Peter is to persevere by the grace that God supplies. God has given us grace in His own dear Son, and His call to each one of us is to be strong in the Lord, to stand firm in this grace to persevere in the light of what is true about who God is, what His grace can do for us, and what glory is coming for those who are His children. This is a call to stability, to firmness, to perseverance in the faith for all those who have trusted in Christ. Brothers and sisters, suffering is only temporary, it's only brief. Glory awaits us, and our God has all dominion, therefore we ought to endure and persevere. Let me close with this. I was recently, just a few weeks ago now, having a conversation with a friend of mine, a fellow pastor, and we were talking about um, pessimism and optimism. I don't know what you think about yourself if you're a pessimist or an optimist. Some people land on either end of that spectrum, glass half empty, glass half full. And my friend Somebody in the conversation asked me, hey, well, which one are you, by the way? Would you say you're a pessimist or an optimist? And I said, well, I, I'm a realist. Yeah. My wife, who knows me better than I know myself and close friends would say, I'm a hopeless optimist. Sometimes can be too optimistic. Did I hear someone say amen? <laughs> I think I heard someone say, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know what you are, optimist, pessimist, I don't know. What do you think Peter is? In light of what we've seen in 1 Peter, how would you score him on the spectrum? Pessimist, optimist. Here's what I think is most accurate. Peter is very candid in this letter about the hardships and the trials and the difficulties that we face as the people of God. I mean, there's just a, I know at least in my heart in this series, there's been kind of a level setting of expectations. 
If you are a blind optimist, well, Peter's brought our feet back down to earth. Peter, I think, is a realist about life in this world. He is a sober-minded realist. The Christian life is hard. It's tough slogging. It requires that we fight with our sin, resisting the passions of the flesh and living for the will of God. It requires that we suffer for Jesus' sake and bear his reproach as we, like him, go outside the camp. It requires that we take up our cross every day. For all of us at some point, it involves the hostility of the world, people slandering us, maligning us. The Christian life is not an easy life, and there's just this tone of sober realism about that in this letter of 1 Peter. But I think also as a matter of faith, Peter is a sanctified optimist. He's a sober realist, and he's a sanctified optimist. And I want to argue that all of us ought to be sanctified optimists. Not blind, pie in the sky, hopelessly optimistic, but sanctified optimists. The prevailing perspective of the Apostle Peter, which is also the perspective of the Apostle John and the Apostle Paul and the other biblical writers, is that despite the hardships of this life and the realities of sin and Satan and the hostility of the world, we win in the end. God has all dominion, and God wins, and because our God wins, we win everlastingly so. And it's different points. Peter's been bringing this to us. We ought to be marked by hope. We ought to be marked by expectation that glory is coming. We ought to be marked by the expectation that God can do wonderful things in our lives and can cause us to stand and persevere by faith. The response of faith to the truths of God's Word is a kind of sanctified optimism. A sanctified optimism not based on dreams and illusions about what might be true, but a sanctified optimism based on who God is and what He has promised. And so I just want to encourage on all of us, this should be our prevailing outlook. For some Christians, the things that are hard about the Christian life, sufferings that we experience, the difficult things involved in wrestling with sin and with the evil one, they loom so large in our minds and we can develop a disposition that is disillusioned and discouraged and dour. I just want to say, as a matter of faith, I don't think that's appropriate. I'm not saying there's room for lament and for sadness in the Christian life, but even in lament and difficulty and discouragement and sadness, there should be in the believer's life a prevailing optimism about what God will be pleased to do in fulfillment of all His promises that He is going to give us all glory in His Son, the Lord Jesus, that He will finish the work that He has begun in us, and that at the end of all things, when we breathe our last, we will be more than conquerors. We will win, not because we have been so strong or so great, but because in Jesus Christ, through what our God has done, we will have victory everlastingly in Him. And so I just want to encourage, like pastors here, we should be bringing that note of optimism to the people of God. Pastors can get so discouraged, and they can allow that discouragement to affect the tone and the culture of the church. That's not right. In light of what is true and what we know is true in the Bible and are called to preach, we should be the greatest optimists in the church. Older folks here who have seen a thing or two, do you know what we younger folks need from you? We need your sanctified optimism about the faithfulness of God. I'm just going to say this. I don't think you know the people I'm talking about. I can remember very distinctly two pastors that were in my life at a particular time. Is it Robert Frost who talks about the two roads and all of that? And, and there, there were two pastors, and I was seeking to decide which one I was going to spend like a lot of time with. And one of the pastors was especially dour and discouraging and could be very depressing and the world is going to hell in a handbasket, and, and that was sort of the tone that came through. And then there was this other pastor who's filled with 
hope about the things that God was going to do in His church and through His people. And I needed that kind of optimism. I needed that kind of optimism that, again, is not the product of some sort of personality test, but an optimism born of the things that are true about Jesus Christ and His gospel and the will of God. What we need as younger people is not all your discouragement about what's going wrong in the world. You could tell us about those things too, but as you mentor and disciple the younger people in this church, we need sanctified hope, faith-filled optimism that God will prevail and His grace is greater than all our sins and faith triumphs in the end and that we can persevere like you have. Husbands and wives, you have to help one another. Bring optimism into the marriage. We can persevere by the grace that God supplies. God has all dominion. Glory is coming. He has given grace to His saints. We can persevere. We should give optimism to our children. This is the tone upon which Peter ends. This is the tone upon which the world ends. When we are forever with the Lamb in perfect paradise, let us live this week and every week in light of this kind of optimism about who God is and what He's doing in the world. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, if left in our sins, when we were Without Christ, we were without hope and without God in the world. We had no reason, no justification for any kind of optimism. When we look at our sins and when we look at the world, there's so much cause to be hopeless. But when we look to you and your love and your grace, the provision of salvation you have given to the world in your Son, Jesus Christ. There is reason for hope to awaken in every breast. We pray that for those who are your people sitting here now who have followed Jesus, have turned from their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ, we pray that you would excite us with this sense of optimism rooted in the things that are true about you and what you have revealed in your word. Make us into sanctified optimists, faith-filled, hope-filled people. For those here who are outside of Christ, please move them from the dread and darkness of their sins and fill them too with hope and with optimism. Optimism that Jesus will receive them if they come to Him in repentance and faith. We pray that You would convince each one of us of the readiness of our Savior, the readiness of our God to make all things well and to give us everlasting salvation in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we all stay our hope and our faith and our optimism about eternity on what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.